Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 17th, 2021. It's lunchtime on the West Coast, mid-afternoon on the East Coast, evening in Europe. And things are changing. The world is changing. Power is changing. Two stories in particular have caught my attention over the weekend and today. The ongoing story about uh, cryptocurrency, this shift in power from traditional finance to, uh, to cryptocurrency. Lots of stories. The Wall Street Journal suggests... Uh, uh, that there are both a rise and challenges ahead, which is another way of saying they have no idea what's going to happen. Um, asset managers, whoever they are, this is from the FT, are expressing caution, which is another way of saying they have no idea of what's happening. Um, and uh, financial experts are kind of confused as well. They're warning us. Stanley Druckenmiller, who apparently is a legendary investor, is saying that we're in a raging mania a shift in power, Miller is saying, from, uh, from traditional banking to uh, cryptocurrency. He's even suggesting, Miller that the Federal Reserve is endangering the dollar's global reserve status. In other words, there's a profound shift in power from, uh, from, from the American economy to somewhere else. Uh, meanwhile, something else is going on, which is kind of connected, or certainly I want to try and figure out the connections. Uh, Lynn Cheney is continuing, and I'm quoting the, the Washington Post here, her lonely battle for the soul of the Republican Party. Again, that may be a misnomer, whether the Republican Party ever had a soul is, is an interesting question. Uh, apparently, uh, Cheney wants her party back, but the feeling is not mutual, according to the New York Times. Um, uh, I don't know what Cheney's party is or was, but perhaps one suggestion is it's the party of her father uh, and, of course, the Bushes. Uh, various Bushes have run our country, or not our country, your country, the American country, over the last couple of centuries. And this is where I want to bring in our author today and our book, Inside Money, Brown Brothers, Harriman and the American Way of Power. This is a book about one of America's most distinguished banks, and it's a book about power and the shifting nature of American power. Um, Zachary Carabao, I'm sorry about that long introduction. I didn't want to shut you up. Uh, but is there a connection here in very broad brush terms between the shift in the American financial economy from traditional banking to crypto and the shift in power within the American Republican Party from the Bushes and the Cheneys to the Trumps and elsewhere. Yes. In your delightfully leading question, there is a shift, although it's been going on for decades, not just for a couple of years. So it's a slow moving shift away from a period of time where, as I write this history in this book, a more closed, cosseted, interconnected elite, somewhat called the shots, both in the private sector and in the public sector, 
and went very freely between them and in media as well to a world that is both you know more small d democratic more populist but definitely less to be academic about it intermediated by elites and the whole crypto experience is yet another turn of that particular wheel right away from governments and central banks being the sole arbiters of whatever a thing is called currency and just to put a ribbon on that one on that score at least and this is where the story of brown brothers is instructive um there's a little bit of also going back and not just going forward because government as the sole issuer of a legitimate legal tender is actually a more recent thing of the sort of 19th century onward and and there was a period of time where private and and private firms and local banks actually did issue their own money and their own currency and brown brothers was very early in that particular game this book uh zachary inside money brown brothers harriman and the american way of power is very intelligent uh and you're obviously very intelligent you've written lots of books I, I'm wondering whether you're too intelligent to fall into the nostalgia trap. Um, you say that um, Brown Brothers Harriman is the the pillar of what would be soon called the American establishment. And this is a book about the history of this establishment, its rise and to some extent its fall. Are you nostalgic for the old world of Brown Brothers? I am not nostalgic for it. I do think there are things that their particular ethos, and by there, I don't mean the establishment as a whole, I actually mean Brown Brothers in particular, um, can offer by way of some guidance about how we think of who we, not just Americans, but anybody should be now and going forward, which is not the same as nostalgia. I mean, this, this is unabashedly a book about a period of history, a long period of history, where wealthy white men called many of the shots and they did so in a way that served their own interests but also spoke to the public good and and the one way in which i think there is a lesson there for the present is that this firm in particular when when it was partnerships that determined capitalism there was a limit to the amount of risk the system could take uh just because it was always their own money and it wasn't like shareholder money and dogecoin uh and that at the heart of a system, it is probably healthier to have people who are somewhat less interested in speculation, more interested in investment, somewhat more focused on the long-term, less on the short-term. And that I think is helpful, but I'm definitely not nostalgic because even when Brown Brothers was at their apex in lots of the 19th into the 20th century, that didn't preclude massive economic dislocations. I mean, every 20 years in the United States in the 19th century, certainly Great Britain had its own version of that capitalism and economies were chaotic and tumultuous and destructive. So it's more of a, what can we glean from what worked in the past that we can apply to the present? And what can we know was manifestly untenable about the past, given our current mores and attitudes and desires? Zachary, I don't want to make this too wokey a conversation, and I'm not really woke myself, but there will be people, I think, who will react to your book quite critically in the sense that you you do sometimes seem to give Brown Brothers a bit of a a, a free ride. You write, um, and, and, you're, and this is a sort of almost a justification for the bank saying, well, they did do some bad things, and I'm quoting you, they were complicit in slavery and the cotton trade. I mean, that's pretty 
it's more than just complicity. It's as if you're writing about a contemporary German firm and say, well, they Volkswagen or Siemens or something. And say, well, they were complicit in, in the Holocaust. Can Brown Brothers really, excusing this rather bad pun, wipe this stain from its history? It's complicity in slavery, which is, of course, not only the founding crime of the American Republic, but the defining crime, something that we still haven't come to terms with. So sure, although your example of Volkswagen is actually quite a good one and that you could write a corporate history of Volkswagen. I mean, this isn't really a corporate history. It's a history of American capitalism through the lens of one particular firm. But you could definitely write the history of any number of national companies that were over a period of time complicit as in deeply intertwined with a system that we now consider unequivocally immoral and evil. So I do think there is there is a reality of historians and there's that really fine line between telling the story as it is and sitting in judgment of people because realities have changed. And slavery is not just the founding crime of American history. As I talk about in the book, it required Liverpool, it required the, the Midlands of England and the, the cotton looms of Manchester and, and uh, Birmingham to facilitate that world, right? It, it took many people to tango in this particular evil. And so I don't in any way, uh, there's no apologia for that. I do, I do think it's important to recognize that if you were wearing a cotton shirt in 1850, you, you in some sense were benefiting from a system of slave labor, whether or not you were doing so consciously or whether or not you actually believed in abolitionism. I don't know that there was any record of William Lloyd Garrison, one of the most adamant of his time, abjuring cotton clothing. Although I do think John Brown, who's another American zealot around eliminating slavery did. So I, I just think it's important you look at, at, at the reality of how these systems evolve um, with the clarity of this is neither to excuse, apologize, make it seem fine. And I, I hope I don't do so in the book. Uh, it's a good response to a rather silly question. Anyway, um, this is a book in many ways, I think, about America. And of course, no book about America is complete unless it has a quote from Alexis de Tocqueville. And you have one at the beginning of the book about uh, America's love of money. De Tocqueville wrote, I know of no other country where love of money has such a grip on men's hearts. Is this the the real story of Brown Brothers and indeed of American capitalism. I'm glad you note the obligatory uh, uh, self-aggrandizing uh, reference to Alexis de Tocqueville. It's as, as if we all feel like continually in writing about the American past, we have to invoke a French visitor to America. At least, at least you didn't end with a quote from Martin Luther King. I've had no, I didn't. three books I didn't. last no. week ending with the same quote from MLK. So you got out of that one. Well, you know, there's always the paperback, so give me give me some time. Um, uh, I, I do think that the, the reality is, particularly in the 19th century, that one thing that distinguishes the United States, the quote-unquote new world, you know, new to Northern European settlers, and the old world was if you had dreams and desires, it was easier to get money to make those real. And... I think that was unparalleled relative to the old world and relative to most of wealth in most of the world until that point in time was either tied up in men, people, human beings, or land, or inert species, gold, silver. And one thing you start having in the 19th century in the United States, and this has actually been studied and looked at and kind of affirmed by academics who wanna look at these things, paper money, 
and promissory paper promises ends up unlocking an immense amount of potential and creating an immense amount of volatility and chaos. But it did mean that you could get money and sort of try to live your dreams and usually fail. And Brown Brothers, as I describe in the book, is kind of at the epicenter of this alchemy by issuing their own letters of credit that for a while are more substantive or more trusted than a lot of the banknotes issued by a lot of flighty banks. Yeah, you say in the book that, um, uh, I'm quoting you again, one of the prerequisites for rapid economic growth is capital, and this bank was... Uh, uh, a, a driver. I mean, it was the oil, the grease of American capitalism. Are they an early example of, of venture capital? What would be the difference between Brown Brothers in the 19th century and Silicon Valley companies, Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia in the early 21st century? So, I mean, there are ways in which they were that, although again, relative to venture capital in the 21st century, they're actually much more conservative, small C conservative. Um, what they're willing to risk and the amount of money they're willing to risk is, is far less, mostly because they are essentially risking their own money and then others join on. So it it limits the amount of risk they can take. There's no leverage, certainly not leverage relative to contemporary Silicon Valley VC firms with you know lines of credit that institutions may be giving them. Um, although VCs are really not you know the real issue today when it comes to systemic risk, uh, and they are. I think much less interested in taking ganders on speculative ventures. So the difference really would be more of a cultural mindset. They were much more interested in, in underwriting actual current activities like trade and finance. Uh, although they do, they do help build the first railroad, really the mm. first passenger steam engine railroad in the world, the Baltimore, Baltimore and Ohio, which begins construction in 1828 based on a speculative venture of George Stevenson in, 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 uh, in in the England at the time, so they do. They're not completely without risk taking. They're just their risk taking is more selective, measured, and unusual. You talked a little bit about clothing earlier, and you use that metaphor in describing nineteenth-century America. You say that Brown Brothers was, in short, woven into the economic fabric of nineteenth-century America. Its transportation network and its trade with the Cotton South and the agrarian West with England and by extension with the rest of the world. How did that affect politics and political power? Was there a moving escalator? Uh, we know in, in your work, you, you talk about this relationship between Washington, D.C. and the bank in the 20th century. Uh, President Truman, for example, picked a number of prominent bankers from, from Brown. But what was happening in the 19th century in terms of this relationship between the bank and political power? You know, in a lot of ways, there wasn't much of a relationship. There was a little bit in the British uh, half of Brown Brothers. So Brown Brothers starts as an Irish linen merchant, but then he sends one of his sons to Liverpool to be the interlocutor between the American cotton trade and the English who are buying the cotton and, and then English manufacturers who are selling it. So Liverpool looms very large in this particular story well into the early 20th century. And you could do a whole other whole other book and a whole other story about how the offshoot of Brown Brothers in in the UK called Brown Shipley also contributes the first few, a couple of the major Bank of England governors, uh, particularly Montague Norman during the Great Depression. But in terms of political involvement in the 19th century, there's almost none because most people of finance, and this includes the rather, you know, the men of rectitude, Brown brothers who really shun the spotlight and the more 
flashier Cornelius Vanderbilt or Andrew Carnegie or even J.P. Morgan, from their perspective, politics was was a playground occupied by littler men, right? They they weren't that interested in politics. And for people in the late 19th century, in a really cynical and crude way, I think they thought they could essentially buy whatever legislation or influence they needed, or at least forestall it. So they didn't really even occur to them to go into government. And that changes really radically in the 20th century. And that's when you begin to get this really intimate and maybe even incestuous interweaving of the same group who go to the same schools who exercise undue influence in government. Although that can also be overstated. You know, there were plenty right. of other people in government who didn't go to Yale and didn't go to Groton. And I, you know, I try to make that point in the book. Like we shouldn't overstate the role of this close-knit establishment, but we should also appreciate just how prominent it was. Well, without wishing to vulgarize the book, Zachary, maybe we can divide it into three periods. The 19th century, where Brown Brothers was greasing, the, providing the oil for, for, for the foundations of American capitalism. The 20th century, when they brought together economic and political power through institutions like Groton and Yale. And then the, the age after that, which is, I think, really the core of your book, or at least the core of the polemic. You may not be nostalgic, but you're not happy about the story of capitalism and American finance since the collapse of the 20th century brown bank world. Is that fair? I think that's fair. But I think it has to do with the, you know, where what is peripheral and what is central. So back to your point about Silicon Valley or crypto, a firm like Brown Brothers that really believed, you know, if you listen to the founder and that just suffuses 200 years of history, he sounds like some cross between Ben Franklin's Poor Richard and, and Shakespeare's Polonius, constantly lecturing about don't take too many risks, know your clients, trust is hard to win and easily lost, better to avoid loss than seek gain and lose everything. I mean, just a series of somewhat cliched homilies and that- Could we describe him as a sort of an invention of Max Weber? Yes, I mean, he is exactly that. He is the, he is the Protestant work ethic made manifest. But so my, my point in the book and my point in general is that that sensibility almost never would have given rise to the internet, to digital telephony, to smartphones, to Elon Musk. And I'm not really lionizing those phenomena. I'm just saying observationally, extraordinary risk capital is not something they would have provided. And if you really want an innovative society, you cannot have sensibilities like Brown Brothers be the sole sensibility at the heart of the financial system. Otherwise, you'll get no innovation. You'll just get very cautious funding of a lot of things being done as they're done, as they will be done, as they should be done, as they will always be done. And that's a kind of a static society. But I think what you want at the center, given that money is power, money is like the power unleashed in an atom, and it can create and it can innovate, but it can also destroy. And I think you want people who are at the, the choke point, who are at the epicenter of that, to be mindful of its destructive potential, at least as much, if not more, than they are mindful of its constructive potential. And that, I think, is the, the ratio that I'm talking about. It's not that the world should be dominated by Brown Brothers sensibilities. It's that the world should not be dominated by the kind of drunken capital party of I'm going to get as much as I can, as quickly as I can, from as many sources as I can, and be untethered to the potential risk of doing so. 
it seems to me, uh, Zachary, that there are two critiques of what has become known as ne neoliberalism. The first is from the left, and they use that word neoliberalism all the time, although I'm not always sure they know what it means. Uh, it's just an in it's a form of insult like fascism or something. And then there's a perhaps a more tempered, a more cautious, perhaps a more conservative critique, which I would fit you into. Is that fair? Yeah. I, again, I'm probably not even as critical. I'm, I am more very specifically critical about the imbalances within a system than I am critical of the system writ large, mostly because I think we write these systems, we create these systems as we go along. So I don't think any of these things are static or should be static. And then all I'm trying to glean from the past in this respect is a particular sensibility that that occupies the financial world, but also modern capitalism in that neoliberal sense that that for those at the apex of capital um, really did start to embrace the I want to get as much as I can. Is this uh, right? Uh, you, you talked about Elon Musk and, and other risk takers, the Bezoses, the Andreessen's. You didn't mention the Wolf of Wall Street as a sort of metaphor. Is this yeah. an appropriate? This is, of course, the, the, the 2013 Scorsese movie about essentially robbery on, on, on Wall Street, which actually had a happy ending or a just ending. Um, is the story of this neoliberal age really one of the wolves of Wall Street coming in and, and, and gambling ridiculously with, with other people's money? I think in the financial world, through the 2008-2009 crisis, that sensibility became disproportionately overrepresented, um, and you know it's one of the reasons why there's such attention to Lehman Brothers, right? If you if you held up a, and you juxtaposed two diametrically opposed sensibilities, you'd have late stage Lehman Brothers and contemporary Brown Brothers as occupying almost opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of their sensibility. So, you know, don't paint with too, big, too broad a brush. There were plenty of people still working in finance throughout this time who were just, you know, decent, honorable people trying to do a decent, honorable job. But the, but the greatest rewards and the model, yes, it becomes, I mean, you put up the Wolf of Wall Street for an earlier generation. It's the Oliver Stone film, Wall Street in the, in the late eighties that was supposed to somewhat fictionalized, uh, Michael Milken and Ivan Bosky at the time and that character of Gordon Gecko saying greed is good. I don't think that's a cliche. I don't think that is an overstatement of, of, a, of an ideology, not an ideology, of a sensibility that really moved to the center of that particular industry in a way that wasn't particularly constructive. And that's where there's a huge difference between like Elon Musk and your bankers, right? It's, it's fine if Elon Musk has dreams crazy or amazing or transformative because he's just one person with a couple of companies. He's not, he's not controlling the system. These firms, insofar as they are at the center of capital formation and capital allocation, have a systemic role. And that's the part that I think needs to be reassessed. Right. So the systemic role certainly is not held by Brown Brothers anymore. If you go to the Brown yeah. Brothers website, it's rather sad. I, I, God yeah. knows who's designed it. Um, this is at best a, a boutique bank, uh, and you stress the fact that it's basically a footnote. Where is the real power now? Is it still on Wall Street? Is it with venture capital? Is it with crypto? Well, certainly with the post-2008-2009 set of regulations, 
um, not just Dodd-Frank, but a whole series of other ways in which regulators, and this is true in the UK, it's true in other countries, it's certainly true for the European Union, um, a lot of what's what was at the most volatile aspects of the financial system has certainly been regulated down, whether it's by central banks or these legislations, so that you know the amount of capital they need to hold is considerably greater, although not nearly enough if there actually were a financial meltdown. And their own internal risk controls have changed radically, although you know not enough for an occasional dramatic blow up. So I don't know the power is is clearly held anywhere. I mean, it, it, in the past five to seven years, and cer certainly pandemic. Uh, I mean, but, but it's got to be held somewhere. Is it with, is it with PayPal? Is it with Square? Is it with Morgan Stanley? And unequivocally into tech land. And the pandemic, you know, hypercharged that. So what's interesting is the first pushback against that reality is coming not most evidently from the European Union or the United States, but it's coming from China, which has recognized that its own you know, technology champions, which they have wanted to elevate, um, also became financial technology champions. Like you, you've written, and you've written uh, many books. One of which is called Superfusion, about the fusion of the Chinese and the American economy. Yeah. As I said, um, uh, Zachary, your book is about Brown Brothers Harriman, but you do stress it's a footnote. It's a small company. It's worth a few billion dollars. Are you suggesting though that we need to? revisit, rediscover, reinvent the values of Brown Brothers in the age of crypto? Is that realistic? I think what we need to do is that we need to expect that those who are who are at the, the capital allocation, you know, center um, should not be the same people as the ones who are like, you know, dreaming the transformative dreams and that that will lead to a somewhat more stable capitalism provided there are a few other people within that ecosystem who are willing to venture whatever they're willing to venture. You know, you do want speculation. You just don't want speculation to be your hub. It's like a hub and spoke problem, right? You want your speculation to be the spokes. You don't want your speculation to be the hub. You want the people who are, who know that money unleashed can be destructive. Like I think Dogecoin's fine. If someone, you know, my doorman, I think bought some Dogecoin and- You have a doorman? I don't have a personal doorman. I live in a building in New York City that has a doorman. And um, but isn't the old joke, Zachary, that once the doorman has a Dogecoin, the thing's finished? Just like in 1999, when taxi drivers were talking about buying Yahoo, we knew there was going to be a bust. Yeah, but I think that's kind of an elite snobbery about about every everybody trying to figure out a change system. The thing that brought things down in 1999 wasn't that a bunch of taxi drivers were buying Pets.com. It was that there was such overinvestment in telecom that uh, that that the that when that wave of money went out, the market went out. That was, I mean, the real bubble in two thousand wasn't silly internet companies. You know, it was WorldCom. It was the hundreds. Fair of enough. Years. So, is the is the crisis then? Because your book is in many ways a, a sociology, a history of an American elite that is in decline or perhaps has simply disappeared. Is the crisis one not of American capitalism, but of the American elite, of people not being accountable and responsible? The kids now, and these institutions like Groton and Yale, they still exist, yeah. but they're not even willing. We've had a number of shows about the, the crisis of the meritocracy, the miserableness now of graduating from, from sure. Harvard and Yale and Princeton. Do, do the new financial elite, are they hiding behind their Dogecoins? It's a really good question. I, First of all, I don't shed any tears for the 
the breakup of a, of a narrow elite. I think the democratization of the world is an incredible thing. It's just really messy to live through. So it's but is not- it, I don't mean to interrupt, but is it real given the concentration of wealth is even more extreme than it was in the 19th century? There's definitely not a democratization of wealth. There is a democratization of, of power and there's there are far more voices that have inputs into our collective discussion. And I think one of the critiques that the book offers for that is the tech elites who have become multi-billionaires, particularly in pandemic land, are missing an action when it comes to contributing to the public good. And I think that that is a real problem. So it's not that I think we should you know, recreate an elite class that governs. It's that those who have been given great privilege, either earned, inherited, you name it, in, in like the Spider-Man theory of history, have a great responsibility. Right. Well, let's let, let's end with that. You had a wonderful piece um, in the Wall Street Journal based off the book, The Capitalist Culture That Built America. And you suggest in our quote unquote post-COVID future, uh, hopefully it will be post-COVID, um, okay. that, uh, that there is an urgency now to, to, to rebuild American capitalism and we can learn from Brown Brothers uh, in conclusion, um, Zachary, give me a couple of very concrete things that can be done to begin this rebuilding. Well, I mean, first, it is, the, you know, it's a call to those tech elites or to anyone who has benefited uh, disproportionately. And I don't mean that as a moral term, just in reality, have a responsibility, right? Oh, a Mark Andreessen, a, a Dan Schulman. All of them, right? And And that they instead of trying to fight a rear guard action against whatever regulation is coming, they should, they should be embedded in the discussion of, okay, what is good for the collective? What's good about data privacy? What's good about wealth creation? What's good about wealth formation? So that would be like number one, just an ethos of you can't thrive unless the commons thrives. And if you think you can beggar the commons indefinitely, you know, you might get away with it individually, but you will not get away with it systemically. And that would be my, my most central point, given where we are right now collectively in the nature of this book. And secondly, that's it. I mean, is that still, it's not very convincing because you know that we've been telling these people this for 20 years and they don't listen. I, I don't think government can mandate culture. Um, so, so it's not that I'm opposed to a, a variety of government regulations. I'm just saying, if you're going to think about what are we going to do collectively to move forward, government alone is, is clearly not going to be sufficient to do that. And you can regulate businesses up the wazoo, but unless the culture of that changes, it's not necessarily going to lead to that sort of collective change. Um, so I do think starting with that idea of what is sustainable, right? What is sustainable capitalism? It is one that understands that all of us are embedded in, in a greater system and that you cannot individually thrive for long if the world around you is not. I know that can sound hopelessly, you know, idealistic, even utopian and potentially naive. I don't really care because I think that that's the essential component to any of this discussion going forward. And I think that is in fact a lesson of the Brown Brothers story amongst many others. Well, it's a wonderful story and an excellent book. It's a very, very intelligent book, Inside Money, Brown Brothers, Harriman and the American Way of Power. It is a book, and we hadn't used this term before that Zachary brought up at the end. It's a book about sustainable capitalism, and he's certainly on the side of making it more sustainable. Uh, I know you are in New York City at the moment in these last days, I hope, of COVID. So I don't know, you can probably still go out, but we still can't party. So we still need to read other books. Your book is an essential book 
for 2021. What else are you reading, Zachary? What else should people be reading? Uh, you know, I read a little while ago, and this is interesting given that the uh, Census Department and, and other stuff is coming up. So it's a book called Empty Planet. Um, Who's it by? I, it's by John Ibbotson and Daryl Bricker, two Canadians. And it is a look at uh, the fact that everyone has assumed that we're going to just have more and more people over the ne next few decades, and that's going to create more and more pressure systemically. And they show rather convincingly and rather data-driven that, uh, in fact, the population of the Earth is cresting and potentially contracting, although it will get older and therefore there'll be more people, much more rapidly than people expect. And that's certainly happening throughout Europe. It's certainly now happening in the United States. Again, a, a census department just came out the other day showing an incredible uh, decline in, in, in births per couple, births per woman. So it's just a way of looking at the fact that the, the century we think we are going to be living in or thought we were going to be living in of massive population growth may shift to a century of population plateauing and even declining much more rapidly than we thought. And I think we're really unprepared for that situation. Well, it's, it's a very interesting scenario. And your book about the the history of American capitalism is also very interesting. Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power. Uh, Zachary Carabell, honor, keep well, and we'll have you back on the show in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. That's a great provocative conversation. Thank you.